I am Suzanne Lang with KRCB's A Novel Idea, and today we have a special show for you. This is our winter fundraiser, and we like to do fun things when we ask you to join the station and become a member. So today I'll bring you a preview of an upcoming show, and I've also mined the archive with a few segments to celebrate what we do here with A Novel Idea. We also have a special gift for you, which I'll tell you about in a minute. I often say that everyone has a story to tell, and sometimes that story steeps within and begs to be told. Such is the case with Rosemary Manchester. Many of you longtime listeners to this show know her because she hosted it for 12 or 13 years before me. I was her humble producer. She has always inspired me with her curiosity, knowledge, her tenacity, and she did not let go of that drive and desire to tell her unique story of living in the Congo at a time where independence from Belgium took place. It was a very rough time in the country. Rosemary was not then the progressive, independent, accomplished woman of today. She was a very young woman with a calling the wife of a Methodist minister with four young children. Adventurous and naive, they became missionaries during that awkward, violent transition from the Belgians to independent home rule by the Congolese. Turn left at the big anthill is Rosemary Manchester's story of that time. It is an inside view and perhaps a story that hasn't really been told before. And we offer you an autographed copy of the book at the $40 membership level. That is really less than $4 a month. And you can become a member online at krcb.org slash join. There's donate buttons all over the website. So head out to krcb.org slash join. Later in today's show, we'll also visit screenwriter, showrunner for the hit series Bosch, and novelist Daniel Pine, who talks with me about the craft of writing. And we'll also visit with Peter Richardson, talking about The Grateful Dead with his book, No Simple Highway, A Cultural History of the Grateful Dead. I just want to give you a flavor of what we do here, so stay with us. It's a novel idea. Turn Left at the Big Ant Hill by Rosemary Manchester is a multi-layered story of her very personal experience and the political and cultural situation in the Congo at the time of independence. Her candor has no vanity or pretension, and her perseverance with her writing process is an inspiration, and we'll feature more of our conversation together on a future broadcast, but I want to bring you this preview. As I said, we feature an autographed copy of her book, Turn Left at the Big Ant Hill, as a gift to you at the $40 level, and I hope you will find your way to krcb.org slash join and become a member of KRCB. We are Sonoma County's NPR station. We pick up my conversation with Rosemary talking about the reality of a young woman with a family in the tumultuous times of independence in the Congo. You had this kind of romantic vision of, of yes. what 
ministering or being a missionary would be like. But your actual experience of the people who lived there, that they were perhaps not needing to be saved in in the way that maybe white Methodists from New York had thought. And you saw these people differently as people who could fabricate their own destiny and, in fact, were doing well taking care of their families, maybe. Or, so talk a little bit about, about that. I, I never saw myself as a savior of souls. I, I was brought up Presbyterian, but I, I didn't have that edge that most missionaries do, that, that uh, the desire to um, change the people and to, in a sense, move them from their own religious beliefs uh, that they had developed over time and change them into, well, you know, it was called saving souls. Uh, since I was uh, only a wife, that's in quotes, what, what I mm-hmm. thought and what I did didn't matter so much. And I could kind of... Um, slipped through by being um, a good hostess and uh, seeing that people were well-fed at my table. And that was kind of my um, fallback position. At, at one point, I did um, teach uh, African teachers uh, who wanted to practice their English. And that, that, was, uh, that was an experience I liked very much, but was cut short when um, I needed to go up country for, uh, for surgery. And so that, that was probably my only thing I could point to as any successful work that I did. I, in, in the sense of being a missionary, I, I was not a good one, but um, my husband thrived on it. He, he took to it as though it was the most natural thing in the world. He was an excellent missionary. That meant that much of his attention went to the work and um, you know, I, I could have used a, a little help and support, but, um, you know, it is what it is. Well, I I would observe that that's part of the central tension in the book. And you've brought up several things that I, I want to follow up with, and I'm not yes. sure which order to take them in. And for our readers and listeners, Rosemary does, um, you do uh, articulate these ups and downs and just as it seems to me that you know you'd experience this kind of elation over some mm-hmm. something happening or some reunion or and then oops breast cancer you know yeah. or oh yeah. gotta have a hysterectomy or and uh, <laughs> kid needs the tonsil out so Let's talk a little bit about your children who were four young kids, two boys, two girls. And you really did become the galvanizing force in your family of insisting we are a family and this is what we're doing together. Yeah. Talk about how your kids did and how you did with the kids and, and that sort of thing. Okay. Anyone who writes a memoir either knows or finds out that their children aren't necessarily going to love your version of the story. And um, they saw some things differently and um, they were there. I was there. And I tell them, these are my memories. You have your memories and these are mine. 
I worked from letters that we wrote um, over the years that we were in Belgium and in Africa. We wrote letters every Sunday night, an original and four copies. I typed them on the Olivetti typewriter and we sent them to our family. Every family member saved every letter. So I have access to years of those letters. And without those letters, I, I couldn't have written this book. Well, it would have been a very different book. But I wrote down the cute things that the kids said and, you know, what happened to them. And mine was very family oriented. And my husband wrote about the work. So I had both points of view on what happened that week. And I'm impressed as I read the letters of my overall urge to shield the family from the danger that we were in. And, you know, I'm giving these cheery little things. Yes, but I'm fine. We're fine. You know, we were hurt. And, and that, that we got through that and we passed it. Well, you know, I wasn't fooling anyone. <laughs> but, um, you know, my family knows me. I mean, my parents and my uh, my that part of my family, um, they, they could, they knew what was happening. I mean, they, they could read the newspaper, they could read Time magazine, just as I did. So that my trying to present everything in, in a positive light somewhat colors, you know, the, the history in the letters. There is some, um, I'd say, uh, uneasiness among the children now that the book has been published. And of course, it's always hard for the children to uh, get mom's point of view on what happened when then they want to say, no, 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 that I don't remember it that way at all. So, right. you know, there's not a universal acceptance of um, my presentation of history among the children, but that's their privilege. And I actually said to um, my son, Peter, I said, but you know, I didn't write this book for, for you and your siblings. Um, you have your own memories, you were there. I'm writing this book for people who have really no notion of what life was like in the Congo at the time of independence. And of course, when we moved there, we had no idea that independence would be coming within a couple of years. That was yeah. presented as something that would happen maybe in 20 years. And it was so such a sudden change that it affected our, our everything about our lives, yes. So you had what I'm gonna call these real-time communications that created a record, even if you put a been on them for your family, for in friends who were the readers of these in real time, mm -hmm. but you, as the writer of those, rereading them must have felt the actual urgency or or fear or emotion of the time, mm -hmm. and what an incredible chronicle to have that maybe you didn't know you were creating at the time with those letters. Mm -hmm. um, but your children at the time, they were young. And yeah. and they really, um, though they, the older uh, children had been in school, um, but your youngest daughter, um, Martha, was, I mean, she, she was little, tiny, what, two, something like that. And, and, 
And so um, this became a formative part of their life, too. So I guess it would be natural that they would incorporate it differently. But as you said, your, your main thrust seemed to be taking care of their health and safety. And with four of them, that was a challenge. And, and that became my mission. You know, my first uh, obligation was to uh, keep the children alive and, and healthy. Um, my husband wanted me to take the children and go to the States. And I didn't want to leave him there. He, I thought he was very careless with his own life. And that, in a way, I kept him from getting himself into more danger. And it was, um, you know, it's hard to make a decision like that. If I had followed his instructions and taken the children and gone to the States, the Board of Global Ministries of the Methodist Church would have uh, paid me uh, some sort of salary for six months and uh, paid our way home. But I didn't have a home in the States. We'd lived in parsonages. And I, I couldn't see how within six months I could become self-supporting and, and um, take care of the children. And so that became a huge point of contention between my husband and me. And of course, his life would have been much simpler if I'd agreed to take the children and go home. But my life would have become much more complex. I just couldn't vision it. But at one point in the book, I say this in the book, I read those letters today. And I say to that woman, get out of there. This is not a safe place for you to be. So it's me now talking to me then and questioning my judgment on that. But my priority was to, uh, to save the children. And um, fortunately, we all made it through that. And came home. I'll just make this little aside about your storytelling, because that's a a delicate balance to hit in the tone of a book where we hear you and have the sense of that younger Rosemary, the kind of excited person or the worried person, the adventurous or the naive person. But at times we hear the more seasoned Rosemary's reflections, the person who you have become reflecting on the actions of your younger self. And that duality is a fine balance in the writing. And I wonder how you approached that as a writer. Well, I worked very hard for 30 years on on the craft of writing. I uh, had always wanted to write. And uh, finally, when I retired at age 72 and moved to Sebastopol, I started taking writing classes. Uh, I discovered I wrote like an English teacher, which is not necessarily an asset, but uh, (laughs) I I worked hard at the craft. I had, had that story. I wanted to tell my story. And I wanted to tell it in such a way that people who didn't even know me would read it and would understand what had happened. So one of the one of the things I did was go back to school in my 70s. I went to the, the writing program at Bennington College in Vermont, a low residency program. And that was wonderful because there, uh, I, I think it was there that I, I really learned to write because um, 
You know, I didn't know a soul on that campus. And I had this story. Um, I found out that there were a lot of young people just out of college in getting their graduate degrees, and they had no idea of the history of the Belgian Congo. So I realized that I had to include that history. It couldn't just be me. It had to be in context. So I, you know, I have a, a, a number of accounts of that period in time in the Congo, and I was... Um, fortunate in my timing that the archives for the Congo, uh, the archives in Belgium, were opened after 50 years. And all this material was available about what really happened during the time that I was in the Congo. And so that was probably the most difficult part of the um, writing technically, because I had to turn into a writer of history and deal with facts. And I, I used um, uh, Time Magazine as uh, a filter because I read Time Magazine while we were in the Congo and while we were going through all these dangerous experiences. I Every Tuesday, Time Magazine would appear in our mailbox and I could read what they thought happened that week. And that was um, good information to have, but it did require some fairly careful uh, thought and careful writing. Um, everything in this book has been through workshops. I'm a great believer in workshops in developing the craft. And I, I've been in some dandy ones. Um, and, and people will react to your writing in, in many different ways, but it's, it's such a learning experience. You know, I'm always telling people, oh, write your story. You've got so much to say, write it down. And Part of it is um, to submit your writing in workshops and find out how it strikes other people. And you learn, I learned there what I needed to work on and how to craft the story. And I got to be, I think I'm pretty good on what to leave out. Because writing like an English teacher, you tend to get all flowery and you go on and on and you embroider your sentences and delve this way and that. And that doesn't work for a story like this. This story needs to be as though it were happening uh, as the reader uh, encounters it. And, and that was my goal, to make it interesting. At the same time, to be as close to the facts as I knew them at the time. What you've done is, is taken the documentation of your own life and then then the documentation of history, really, and melded them into a story that has a contemporary voice of the time and has that sense of danger and transition, but also that more mature woman kind of mm -hmm. saying, what were you thinking? Exactly. <laughs> <You know? laughs> You got it. That's right. And I, I, I think I told you I spent 30 years writing this book. And I'm, I'm really satisfied that I spent 30 years because it was a story that I felt was unusual. The viewpoint of a woman trying to protect her family on the field of battle. And uh, I don't think that story is told often enough. Our stories about wars and battles are often written by people who were involved in 
fighting those battles or people who were in a place of power where they were overseeing and planning those battles in which other people were losing their lives. And I, I thought that this story would, had enough unique things in it, you know, a mother trying to protect her children from, from soldiers. And uh, I just really, I think I devoted my life to it. And I, I'm not sorry I spent 30 years on it. Um, and, and so people would say, well, when are we going to get to read your book? I said, yeah, coming along someday, someday. <laughs> I, I live, as you know, in a retirement community, a splendid place with two, 200 people here in Sebastopol. I, it's a wonderful community to be part of. And uh, people here say to me, I had no idea, of course, unless... I had been able to finally get this book published, they wouldn't have any idea, not, not just an idea of me, but an idea of the impact of the story yes. of the mother and the children and the war. The satisfaction of living a really long life and the satisfaction of having been able to complete the work that was so important to me. Yes. To be able to put that book in people's hands means everything to me. And Suzanne, I, I so appreciate your support. Those years that we worked together on Novel Idea are so precious to me. And um, I, I love the way you've kept things going. Uh, you kept Novel Idea uh, before the, uh, the listeners. And it's, it's so wonderful to be reunited with you and to talk about um, my own book. So thank you. Rosemary Manchester, author, radio personality, former host of this show, A Novel Idea. What I enjoyed about this conversation was her ability to be in the moment of her own story, but also create enough of a remove that we appreciate it in the larger framework of history. As I said, this is a preview of our conversation in which Rosemary talks about the misogyny of the church, the danger experienced during the transition to Congolese independence, and the trials of her marriage and family bonds. Turn Left at the Big Ant Hill by Rosemary Manchester. You can receive a signed copy of the book with a pledge of $40. krcv.org slash join is the place to go on the web to do that. And again, there are donate buttons all over the website. Find your way there. I think if you are a regular listener, you know that I am drawn to our constant reimagining of history. It's a theme that runs through a lot of current fiction and nonfiction. I encourage you to listen to our podcast of A Novel Idea and past shows. I think you may also start to see some of those cultural trends revealed. You can download the KRCB app for your Apple or Android device and listen directly that way. Literature, memoir, history, rock and roll, it's all part of a human conversation and it is what I enjoy and I hope you will engage with our authors by reading their books and I hope you will engage with this radio station by contributing money. We aim to bring unique and locally produced programs and NPR news and programs, not to mention the curated music you hear each weekday on KRCB. krcb.org join is the website, and at the $40 level, you can have a personally autographed book of Rosemary Manchester's memoir, Turn Left at the Big Ant Hill. 
let's move on and listen to a bit of a conversation I had with Daniel Pine. He's the author of six novels and has a pretty deep history with writing and producing for film and television, including as showrunner for the hit series Bosch and writer and script doctor on such films as The Manchurian Candidate, Pacific Heights, and Any Given Sunday. I wondered about this nexus with writing and production, and here is part of my conversation with author Daniel Pine. Welcome remotely to Northern California. Thank you. For our listeners, we had this interview scheduled a week ago and had to reschedule for today. And in that ensuing week, I got to binge watch Bosch, which you are oh, no. the showrunner for. And so uh, we're here to talk about your book, Catalina Eddy, and we're going to talk a lot about that. But I guess I first wanted to ask you about that, about what a showrunner is. And uh, why don't you tell our listeners what a showrunner does? What a showrunner does the showrunner on a TV show is basically responsible for everything Um, with the exception of physical production. um, We develop the story, we rewrite the scripts, we cut the shows, we make the final decisions on anything involving story or the creative elements of the show. Of course, when you have an ongoing show like Bosch, a lot of a lot of those initial decisions have been made. So part of it is just to continue the good work that they've done. Um, but in the in the new season, in the fourth season, I'm basically responsible for the story. So if it if <laughs> if it if it goes south, it's my fault. So what I I noticed in my brief study of Bosch and your involvement with it just through the credits, um, I noticed that not on every show you have a writing credit. And I also noticed, um, and for our listeners, uh, Daniel Pine is also a screenwriter and has had many films produced, including The Manchurian Candidate and Pacific Heights, among others. But it also seems like you have written some screenplays that maybe either got into production, but your name's not on the credit, or maybe you did some work on and are uncredited. And I guess I'm wondering how that works. And I'm sure it's very complicated, but when your name is actually when you're credited with being the writer of either a screenplay or in a show like Bosch? It's actually, film is by necessity, film and television are by necessity collaborative mediums. So on Bosch, we have five writers to write 10 episodes. So um, each writer last season, last season I was not the showrunner, I was just an executive producer, I was sort of under the showrunner. And your response, each, each person is responsible for writing their own episode, which is where my credit would appear. But all of us are involved before the season begins in sort of breaking the season and figuring out what the major storylines are and who the major characters are and what the, what the major twists are. And then we break that down into episodes in what they call a writer's room. And then People go off and they write their individual episodes based on the outline that we've created in the room. And similarly, in features, for since the beginning of time, there is this tradition of 
occasionally having a screenplay that someone writes and then they're not available to do more writing on it by the time the production comes together or perhaps the production and the writer have and the director have a creative part in the way so they hire another writer to come in and you've heard the term script doctor which is basically someone who comes in on an existing project and makes changes and and hopefully makes it better um, and the decision on who gets credit ultimately in, in a screenplay especially is decided by three writers. We have an arbitration process where writers will read all the different drafts of the script and they'll decide who deserves credit based on a on a WGA formula that you know occasionally occasionally rewards the wrong person, but generally is is fair and everyone agrees with it. So it means that I have done a lot of work on projects that. I got no credit on. It means that I've gotten credit on projects that I had very little to do with in the end. Um, it, it's just the nature of, of the job. It's not. It's one of the reasons why I like writing books, because nobody comes in and rewrites me, and I'm not rewriting somebody else. It's all my work. And we're going to get to your life as, as, a, as a novelist. I mean, it's, I've been really, I, could, I can say that I've been really lucky in screenwriting and in television, but in screenwriting especially, um, I've rarely had to be replaced. I don't do a lot of rewriting, so I pick and choose. I try to do it when it seems right. But I've been very lucky. I've been able to work with a lot of really good directors, and they keep me on for the whole project. So, And I guess I'm wondering if it's um, uh, really a smaller world than, than we might think. Uh, work, working in, in Los Angeles, working in Hollywood, um, being a script doctor or working with directors, is it a, a fairly small world? It is. It, it's pretty small, and it fluctuates. You know, you can be in favor for a while, and then you sort of fall out of favor, or the directors and the producers that you work with either age out or or aren't make as, as many projects, or people get tired of you and they replace you. So there's a constantly shifting handful of people who are doing a lot of that kind of work. In television, it's a, it's a much bigger field, but you have TV shows that have these staffs of five to, to ten writers who write all the shows. And it's not, I, don't, I think the, the Writers Guild is the smallest of the creative guilds in Hollywood. So it's not a it's not a huge group. It's in the thousands, but it's not huge. Because I know a lot of a lot of people are out there writing screenplays hoping they'll get made into yeah. movies. And uh, I think there are probably screenwriters who have fairly good reputations as writers but maybe never get a project seen to fruition. Yeah, it's true. It's true. That's it's a classic story. You'll have people who have been reasonably successful and have but their actual credits, the things that you see if you look them up yes. are few. And for you, uh, as a writer, as a maker, as a creator, um and you have these four it is four novels, isn't it? Now, yeah. It it seems that the way you would approach writing for each project is is very different. Uh, well, maybe not very different. You're you're creating story, narrative, plot, uh, characters, um, but the telling of that story is is through really a different medium, and the medium of a novel is the reader's head, you know. So, um, what are are for you the um, specific challenges 
and satisfactions about working in, in these different forms as a writer? The biggest challenge for me in making the transition from film to prose was that in film, you only can know what you see and hear. You can only know about a character through their behavior, through their dialogue, through what other people say about them. And in a book, you can go inside somebody's head and you can describe what someone is thinking. In a movie, you have to move them through the room and hope that the way the performance develops tells you what's going on inside of their head. And occasionally they might be able to tell you what's going on in their head. But a lot of times you, it's a little bit of an opaque medium. And you learn to tell story through gesture and through visuals and through, you know, through editing, through, through a combination of images that when put in, in sequence tell you a story. Uh, books are so much more fluid. And, it, and it's difficult for me because that, that process of writing for film, you tend to get you tend to tell a story in a, in a relatively linear way. And in a book, you can jump around, you can go backwards, you can tell the story for a while, and then the character can remember something that's very important that happened in the past, and you can tell that entire story. In that respect, they're very different. And it sounds like for you that um, moving into novels, and it sounds like you started out screenwriting first, that maybe it affords you a little bit more freedom in telling a story. Yeah, that's oh, that's a good way to put it. I what what happened to me was I I came out of college thinking that I wanted to write fiction, whatever that meant, and I got an opportunity to I, I just sort of through chance and circumstance, I I got the opportunity to start working in television and film, so I did that, and and the added benefit for me was. Nobody really cares how well written a screenplay is in terms of the actual writing of it. But I learned that you, in the same way that you can entice a reader and you can create images in a reader's head, part of the art of a screenplay, especially a screenplay before the movie is made that's, that's getting everyone to agree to make the movie, part of the art of that is to create the same kind of story so the person who's reading your screenplay sees the movie. They read the words, but they see the movie. And that's kind of how I approached how I approach storytelling. And it, it, it did kind of free me up because I was able to experiment with some storytelling styles and some prose styles in the, in the dialogue and description in my screenplays without fear of, you know, of fiction editors slamming me early on. I think I became, I also just became a better writer by write, doing dramatic writing. I had to write with a lot more concision. My action and description had to be very concise because screenplays don't tolerate a lot of that. So I learned how to, how to describe things with very few words. Well, what I've noticed about, about your novels is that you obviously take a real delight in language. And yeah, and I do. so yeah. that makes the uh, reading of it fun. Yeah. I'm glad. Yeah, I have, a, uh, I have this weird schizophrenic writer's personality where um, some of my favorite writers are great stylists like Joyce and Pinchon and Faulkner and David Foster Wallace. And then at the same time, some of my favorite writers are just great 
simple storytellers, powerful storytellers like Faulkner and Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett and um, people who who aren't their stylists in a different way. And um, I like to, I, you know, I've been trying to learn how to how to find a middle ground between those two things without over describing, without pushing people out of the story with you know, my attempts at, at poetic language, but at the same time not succumbing to the temptation to just write hard-boiled, simple description like a lot of pop yeah. novelists. Yeah, and I think that sometimes that is a challenging line um, because, yeah, sometimes um, overly descriptive language, as you put it, can really push you out and and distract from... Like when I have mm-hmm. to reread a sentence more than once, and not just because I enjoyed it, more like because what's going on here? <laughs> you know, that, yeah. that's a problem. Uh, so your yeah. your latest book is is Catalina Eddy, and something that is in your I, I would say um, your Southern California fiction is is weather. And I'm wondering, uh, and maybe you could tell our, our listeners uh, uh, what Catalina Eddy is. Yeah, it's not a book about Catalina, and it's also not a right. book about a guy named Eddy. It's, the Catalina Eddy is the weather phenomenon that creates what uh, Southern Californians call June gloom, which often stretches from May to September. But it's that, it's that weather pattern where... It's gray in the morning, and then it burns off around noon, and it's sunny and windy in the afternoon, and then it repeats itself again and again and again. And I've lived down here for a long time, and it kind of occurred to me that that was an interesting phenomenon, that this went on and on, that this was, and it was the same. I can, in in the same way that uh, um, I grew up in Denver and we had real seasons, um, I can recognize the seasons through through this weather pattern that seems infinitely the same, and then that kind of interested me because I was also doing I you know I was I was sort of toying around with these stories that are all crime stories and they're all Southern California crime stories and they take place in different eras, but they all sort of they seemed like they shared a certain rhythm, and in the same way that that lots of of crime books written in the 20th century and and beginning of the 21st century have a certain common language. And I, I was just interested in that. So I, I set the three novellas in Catalina Eddy um, all in June. So they're all, all the characters are dealing with this June gloom weather pattern. And it's the same in all three books, even though the plots and the characters are all different. Um, I don't know. It's just sort of, I like organizing principles like that. I've always liked it in film and I really like it in storytelling. I like finding odd connections between place, character and place. And that's part of the satisfaction of this book. And as you just mentioned for our our listeners and our readers, um, Catalina Eddy is a novel in three decades. Daniel Pine author of six novels, including his soon-to-be-released Vital Lies, a follow-up to his thriller Water Memory. He was the showrunner for the hit streaming series Bosch. I am Suzanne Lang, and this is KRCB's A Novel Idea, and this is our winter fundraiser. 
We are a show about books and writing and life, and you can hear us the first and fifth Sunday of every month, and you can listen to us online and discover past shows at krcb.org, or you can download the KRCB app and listen to our podcasts and all of our programming that way. We have autographed copies of Rosemary Manchester's memoir, Turn Left at the Big Ant Hill, at the $40 level. Make your pledge of support today at krcb.org join. And it really does communicate to the station that you appreciate this type of programming, and I hope you'll take advantage of this opportunity. I have never really been a follower of the Grateful Dead, but Peter Richardson's book, No Simple Highway, A Cultural History of the Grateful Dead, was rich and insightful on the band, the times, and the music, and gave me a whole new perspective. Richardson teaches at San Francisco State, lives in Sonoma County, and has written critically acclaimed books on Hunter S. Thompson, Ramparts Magazine, and the radical author and editor, Carrie McWilliams. Here's a bit of the conversation we had together upon release of No Simple Highway. Richardson put forth that The Grateful Dead was more of a project than a band, which had an overarching ethos of ecstasy, mobility, and community, and he chose to thematically organize the book this way, and that's where we pick up my conversation with Peter Richardson on The Grateful Dead. This is not the first book on The Grateful Dead, and, and a lot of readers have, have read a lot of them. And so from the, from the outset here, I was thinking... What can I add to this short shelf of books that's already out there, most of which are memoirs. Um, There are some histories. There's a couple of biographies. And I thought, you know, I really need to make sure that I'm not just rehearsing things that, that other people have said, that I'm adding something to our understanding of The Grateful Dead. And one of the things I thought I could do is move a little bit more toward a kind of interpretive history of the dead. Like, what was it about their music and their project that allowed them to be so successful for so long? And I don't think you can always kind of back that out of the books that are already out there. I mean, you can sort of connect the dots, but I wanted to put that front and center just by asking the very simple question, why? You know, why this band and not some of their colleagues or peers? Jefferson Airplane sold more records. Creedence Clearwater Revival sold more records and and more popular in many ways. But those bands tended to burn out or fade away. And the dead just kept rumbling on. And so I wanted to make sure that, that I started with that basic question of why. And then what that forced me to do was come up with a few explanatory ideas. Like, what was it exactly that distinguished their project from the projects of these other bands? And I thought that those three things, ecstasy, that is the the urge for transcendence, for that experience of total rapture, was a big part of it. Uh, also mobility. And what by that, I just mean that they took Uh, you know, a necessity, which is that they had to tour a lot because they decided to remain in the San Francisco Bay Area and they didn't sell enough records to just live off their royalties. Or rather, they didn't sell enough records to support the scene that they wanted to support, employ the people they wanted to employ, uh, and do what they wanted to do musically. So they, they virtually had to become 
a touring band, but they embraced that. It not only became part of their operation, it also became part of their mythology. They tapped into that American fascination with the open road, which they picked up from the Beats. They were all big Jack Kerouac fans. And so going out on the road became this kind of signature for them. And that's what I meant by the mobility part. And then the third thing is community. And I think that probably is the most uh, important piece of the puzzle, that from the very outset, they were always fostering community and that that was an important part of their of their project. And it, it became an important part of that project's durability, too, because there were some creatively slack periods in there. There were periods when the albums weren't selling very well. There were periods when they had some financial setbacks, um, embezzlement, for example, and, and other kinds of problems with their business. But they always had their tribe. And as long as they had that community, they could keep touring and kind of keep moving ahead. And, and that also let them do um, some experiments musically. You know, they never wanted to repeat themselves. They were very committed to improvisation. Uh, but they also were al- always looking for new things to do musically as well. They never turned into a kind of self-imitation or a nostalgia act, even though they were written off as a nostalgia act as early as the late 1970s. So I, th- I thought that those three things, and I'm, there are more, of course, but I thought that those three things did a lot of explaining when it comes to that basic question of why the dead were that successful for so long. It's not a biography, though there's biographical material in it. And Jerry Garcia was the epicenter of this ethos. And he certainly had early influences. And and then with the band, their early involvement with with Ken Kesey, for instance. Um, What do you think uh, drove him or set him in this direction of that this tribe, uh, this larger community of fans seemed to focus on what radiated from him? No, I think you're exactly right. I mean, Robert Hunter at one point, much later, said, you know, the whole Grateful Dead organization is a reflection of Jerry Garcia's mind. He was a very reluctant leader, but I think everybody looked to him, not only musically, but also organizationally when they had a big decision to make. I mean, he didn't like conflict and he didn't really want to be an active leader. He thought it was ludicrous, for example, that that Mick Jagger made all the important decisions for the Rolling Stones. He, he could barely believe that. It seemed so unnatural to him. And, and the dead ran their scene pretty democratically, really. They shared their earnings more or less equally. They made decisions together. The president of the corporation was one of their crew members. Uh, you know, so there was it wasn't very hierarchical or anything like that. They really walk the walk when it when it came to those uh, kind of 60s kind of tribal and you know slightly countercultural values but to get to your question Suzanne which is a really good one like what was it about uh, Jerry Garcia and his early experience now they were nothing if not collaborative so you, you don't want to overestimate Jerry Garcia's contribution but I spend a good bit of the book especially early on trying to figure out what was happening with Jerry Garcia and I traced it back, actually, much of much, many of his interests and some of these kind of values to this 12-month period between his 15th and 16th birthdays, 
where four important things happened. The first thing is that uh, he received an electric, electric guitar for his birthday. He actually received an accordion and then traded it in for a Dan Electro guitar. He was thrilled with that. So that was very important. The second thing is that he uh, discovered marijuana. Now, his parents owned a bar. He was very familiar with the bar scene. They, and it was, a, it was a, more kind of a saloon, really. They opened it only four years after the repeal of Prohibition. It was uh, on Rincon Hill in San Francisco, not far from the Embarcadero. It was mostly sailors, seamen, warehousemen. It was, you know, very freewheeling environment where his parents owned this bar. Of course, his father was a professional musician as well. Uh, he didn't like alcohol. I mean, he, he and he discovers marijuana when he's in a, when he's 15 years old. He wasn't very interested in school, but he was very interested in illustration and art. And he signed up for art classes like weekends and summers and things like that at what's now the San Francisco Art Institute. And that turned out to be incredibly important because he not only learned how to make art from his teachers there, but he also learned from Wally Hedrick, who was really his, his chief mentor, who was married to Jada Fayo. I mean, they were making some very important art. They weren't getting a lot of credit at the time, but they were living this kind of really interesting, enticing, bohemian life that I think would have made a big impression on anybody including Jerry Garcia, who was kind of looking for more. So running into the San Francisco Art Institute and the way they lived was a big lesson for, for Jerry Garcia. And it was through Wally Hedrick that he found out about Jack Kerouac and the Beats. And those, you know, that novel was just coming out at the time. Uh, and, it, it, you know, of course, Jerry Garcia and the, and the Grateful Dead were not the only ones that were really impressed by what what Jack Kerouac was doing at the time. But Kerouac was out in San Francisco at that time as well. So then this kind of national media spotlight was on San Francisco and the San Francisco art scene. And so I think that those four things uh, were really important in persuading Jerry Garcia to pursue this path that he took. I mean, he never really went back to straight life. He never finished high school. He sort of washed out of the army very quickly. I really just wanted to make music. And, you know, this bohemian scene that surrounded uh, the mid-century San Francisco art scene, I think, w turned out to be really important. And he even said that. I mean, I'm not inferring anything here. You have to dig a little bit. He didn't talk about it a lot. He wasn't asked about it that often. But he was very clear about the debt that he owed to those instructors that he had over there not only for teaching him how to make art, but in teaching him how to live like an artist. That whole time period, uh, especially, I'd say, those 10 or 15 years um, between, say, 1965 and 1980, were such a transitional period. And it's really kind of amazing to think of all of these musicians having this very fluid relationship with each other and influencing each other. And it didn't seem to be in a competitive way either. And I really can't imagine that sort of uh, intimacy and cross-fertilization happening today. And it almost hmm. seems that um, as soon as the 
energy or vibrancy was discovered or announced or commodified, really, that they had to leave that scene and, and, and move someplace else. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, I think the initial vibrancy, um, again, I think can be traced back to the models that they had before them. I mean, in the 1950s, for example, these painters and sculptors, also very small but vibrant, kind of insular, and very much do-it-yourself. They didn't have those institutions that could support them that they might have had in Los Angeles or New York City or even Nashville or Chicago. Uh, you know, they didn't have a developed scene there. They didn't have, you know, outside uh, resources to compete for. And so they helped each other. And, and, and that was one of the hallmarks, I think, of the, of the mid-60s music scene. And not just the music, but the art scene more generally because of the psychedelic poster artists and the photographers and all the other artists that were drawn to this scene were treated the same way. You know, there was a lot of enthusiasm for the kinds of, you know, things that were coming out of the scene. And it's incredible fertility, really striking. But you're exactly right. I mean, as soon as the... Um, as soon as the labels discovered it, and they discovered Jefferson uh, Airplane first, Garcia worked on Surrealistic Pillow. And it was sort of through that um, nexus that Warner Brothers Records discovered, which didn't have anything going in rock and roll at the time, really not very much in music, period. But they figured they wanted to get in on it. And that began to change the scene a little bit. And, and also the Summer of Love and the way the Summer of Love turned out in 1967, the whole scene just kind of collapsed under its own weight. I think the, the art scene got a little bit swamped by this influx of young people that the city was not really set up to support. And the scene, you know, started turning a little rancid. And the dead got out of there pretty quickly. I mean, they were in Marin County by 1968. And in that going to Marin County, it um, embodied a whole nother thing of kind of the mobility or, or getting back to the land or having a lot of space to inspire. Yeah, that the really back to the land movement, which was peaking during that time, is another important backdrop, I think, for the Dead's project. Not not just for the way they were living. You know, they did move to Marin and kind of spread out. Mickey Hart had a ranch. Um, David Crosby had a ranch also in Nevada. They began spending more time with, with David Crosby and Stephen Stills and, you know, just making music together. And Garcia also played on their debut album. He plays that, that opening uh, steel guitar riff, pedal steel riff for teacher children. It was the same kind of sharing and, and cross-fertilization. But this time, uh, the dead decided to uh, let their music reflect that, which wasn't that much of a stretch because most of them had been very wrapped up in the folk revival scene before they became uh, an electric blues band. Uh, after, they, after the British invasion, they, you know, which they were very impressed by. So they had all these folk and kind of country chops that they were working on. Um, Jerry Garcia got a pedal steel guitar somewhere in 1967, I think. And he became very enamored of it and was kind of taught himself how to play it. And, and pretty soon the music was, their music was reflecting that. And, 
And they saw the success of Crosby, Stills, and Nash debut album, which was huge, not just commercially, but critically acclaimed album. And they thought, well, you know, we could probably do that. And they did. They did something very much like that with the harmonies and the acoustic guitars and very folksy, you know, and, and also the iconography on the album art. It was very much in keeping with the Back to the Land movement, which was kind of peaking during that time. And I, I, I would say that kind of the, the ultimate expression of that was really Woodstock. And you think of that Joni Mitchell lyric that, you know, we got to get back to the garden. And that became the really the first commercial success that the Grateful Dead had, Working Man's Dead in American Beauty. And that gave them something to tour behind. I mean, they hadn't really been doing national tours before that. And when Warner Brothers heard Uncle John's band, I mean, the first time they heard it, they could hear the cash registers ringing. You know, they knew that this was gonna this was the gonna be the first album that the Dead did that actually moved some units, and they were very excited. So, so that really sets them up. They moved on musically as they always did, but um, that kind of set up this kind of touring machine that they developed in the 1970s, and that kind of rumbled on into the 80s and 90s, into what some people call the, the mega-dead period, where they started to play stadiums and, and things like that. And you know, by 1991, they're, they're, the, they're the highest-grossing touring band in North America. So a lot of ups and downs in between. That was a bit of my conversation from the archives with Peter Richardson, and the book is No Simple Highway, A Cultural History of the Grateful Dead. It is our winter fundraiser, and today I just wanted to give you a flavor of what we do here on KRCB's A Novel Idea. Literature, history, art, and culture, and the people involved in all of that are what we explore here on the first and fifth Sunday of the month. You can join us anytime online at krcb.org or on the KRCB app on your Apple or Android device. And right now, I'd love to have you go out to krcb.org slash join and become a member today. At the $40 level, you can have an autographed copy of Rosemary Manchester's memoir, Turn Left at the Big Ant Hill. We are Sonoma County's NPR station, broadcasting at 104.9 FM, streaming and podcasting at krcb.org. I have production assistance from James Morey and Mark Prell. This is a production of Lit Radio and Northern California Public Media with support from Oliver's Market, celebrating over 30 years serving customers with four locations in Sonoma County. Employee-owned and locally focused. Learn more at oliversmarket.com. I am Suzanne Lang. Thank you for listening and thanks for giving. It's a novel idea.